This is the day Jesus died. We call it Good Friday. It's the day that Jesus, the suffering servant, was crowned king. There is so much written in the Gospels about this one day, and you see so many themes that are hit, almost every major theme of every epic story, such as overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, uh, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, rebirth. Uh, you, you pay attention and you'll see death to life, light to dark, yin and yang, chaos to order, redemptive suffering, slaying the dragon, the father returning home, uh, rite of passage, the, the underdog, the diamond in the rough, uh, forbidden love. You see like pretty much every Disney movie climax here on Good Friday. They all culminate in the cross. This is the day that the suffering servant was crowned king. Now, in the Gospel of John, there was an earlier attempt to make Jesus the king. He had fed this big crowd, and they loved him. And it says in a John sort of way, after he gave them all bread, they, they intended to come and make him king by force. Which, that's kind of funny. Like, what does that look like, making him king by force? But do you hear the message? Oh, you're providing. You're a leader who's putting a chicken in every pot and a Volkswagen in every garage. You be our king. And it says in a John sort of way that Jesus slipped away from the crowd and retreated up a mountain as if to remind us that Jesus lives at a higher plane of consciousness than that tribal thinking. Now, it's late Thursday night. Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane after dark. Judas comes in with a crowd. Now, here's the thing about crowds. You give them enough time, and they're always going to turn on you at some point, which is why Jesus never attached himself to their approval rating. They have swords and clubs with them, and they've come to fight, which is really funny, as if Jesus is going to fight back. They obviously don't know Jesus yet. They don't get that he's fundamentally risen above their tribal consciousness to nonviolence. And isn't this what enemies can do? They'll take and assign their own motives to you as if you are as shallow in that moment as they are. It can be so tempting to take that bait and to lower yourself back down into this fight or this squabble, back down into lower brain functioning. And Jesus has to be solid to not slip back to that level. And Jesus' own guys don't get it either. So I love this. When the mob comes, Peter pulls out his sword and, and, and he goes for a guy's head, which brings up all kinds of questions about Jesus never said anything about stop carrying a sword. But he goes for this guy's head and Jesus calls him off like down boy and he heals the enemy's ear. This is greatness. Can you imagine how disarming this would be? This crowd has come for a fight and Peter is giving them what they want. See, fighting is an act of cooperation and Peter's amping it up and the crowd thinks they're getting what they want and then Jesus heals them. He disarms them and he says, you came to take me, here I am. And then the disciples run away, which is really interesting as well. People, they will fight. And they will flee before they stand there. The, the two primitive states of the amygdala, it's easier to do either of those than to rise to a higher level and be present in the face of a threat. That takes a next level human who has evolved to a higher consciousness, who is living in strength and bravery. And they're not there yet. They're these guys who are falling asleep in the garden and they're still not awake. And Jesus is still alone. See, this is the betrayal theme coming out. This is the quest. This is the darkness when Jesus goes in, when betrayal hits closest to home and things are stripped away and you've been vulnerable and you're still all alone, which is where Jesus will die. So the Jews take him away 
they set up a hearing just among only the Jews. Notice how this works. The inner circles of power working at night. The people who are closest to you are going to hide their betrayal the best. Uh, later, the Romans are going to have a trial in the morning, and that's sort of indicative. Like, like at least with the Romans, what you see is what you get. You know, it's it's how a lot of people hate Amazon, who is kind of evil. But you know, Amazon just happens to be winning at the same game everybody else is playing. So the Romans are like, don't hate the player, hate the game. But I'll take Amazon any day over a religious monopoly who is cloaking a pursuit of power and good works. Right? See, the most dangerous people are those who work in darkness. So Jesus is being oppressed by people who are oppressed and who are taking it out in an unhealthy way on the threats beneath them. It's the Jews, Jesus' own circle. They're, they're being the bullies by, by they're taking their losing out by bullying the, the threat underneath them. It's like little brother syndrome. So the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel. We think it was written to people in Rome not long after Nero came to the throne. You know, pizza, pizza, Nero? Right after Nero was crowned emperor, this whole crucifixion and story in Mark reads much like an emperor's triumphal procession or coronation ceremony. Okay, the, the story Mark wrote and passed around Rome was provocative and it was a dangerous message that was pointedly and intentionally subversive to that Roman imperial culture. He used words to describe Jesus like Messiah, Son of God, Lord. Don't let that be lost on you. These were imperial terms. This was a coup of sorts. It was a different kind of coup. They called it the way. It wasn't a subculture. It wasn't like early Christians were okay being relegated to a powerless minority that's being led around on a leash like Christianity was one of the government's pets that just had to obey its master. The early Christians believed that they were the master, that they were the ones in power, that their king was the true emperor. It would be like saying Jesus is president, but way more. Imagine you're in North Korea and you claim that Jesus is the supreme leader or the marshal of the republic or the heir apparent dictator. This is governmental language very strongly. And, and here's where a lot of people get off too. It wasn't supposed to be like a cutesy or little neat saying. This got people killed because they wouldn't stop saying it. And people also get off here. Another mistake we can make is like, oh, well, it was okay for them back then to rebel and to refuse allegiance to this superpower empire because Rome was such a barbaric place. And, of course, we've moved past that. But, you know, that wasn't the case either. I mean, it was barbaric compared to the 21st century developed world, sure. But in their day, Rome was the greatest, most stable superpower the world had ever seen. It had highways and trade and peace and order and a complex economy. So for the gospel writers, Jesus was an indictment of the entire age-old conquest narrative that undergirds all human political systems all over the world, from ancient Egypt to Rome to the USA, that are built on the conquest narrative. They really believed that Jesus was king and that this was a different way to do government and life. They believed Caesar wasn't king. Our king, they said, wears a crown of thorns. He's a different kind of politician, the suffering servant of his people. One scholar says this about Mark and the early Christians. Uh, he said, one might expect that a Jesus follower would downplay the crucifixion or ignore it altogether or concentrate on Jesus's successes in attracting crowds and performing miracles. But Mark did the opposite. He highlighted what Jesus was doing and made Jesus' suffering and execution the central part of his message. In fact, the cross is the basis for Jesus' lordship. 
So my six-year-old son asked me the other day, Dad, why do they call it Good Friday if Jesus died? And I said, that, my son, is the great paradox. He's like, paradox? Uh, Good Friday is the day that he was crowned king. Now, here's how it went. There were a couple of trials, which is funny because Jesus hasn't hurt anyone or done anything particularly wrong. The worst thing that he did was disrupt trade for an hour and practice medicine without a license. But what they really cared about was threats to their power, keeping their system intact. And so they made some charges against him, and those were he claims to be king. Now, they have these trials. The first one is an inner circle of Jews who arrested Jesus in the middle of the night, and they decide they want him dead. They've already made up their mind. They're rule followers, though, and they don't want to bypass the rules of their system. So they have another trial. They take him to the full Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to make sure that they do it religiously the correct way, and they don't make God mad. They do it the proper Jewish way. And, of course, they all decide to kill him for subversion, but they're afraid. They can't do capital punishment because they'll get in trouble the Romans. They're rule followers. Romans don't allow others to do capital punishment. So the Jews take him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now Pilate is on edge because it's the Passover and he wants to keep the Jews calm because they're on his watch and he knows that at any time riots could erupt and that would be on his head. So when they bring him to Pilate, the Jews are trying to sway Pilate. They use Roman language and charges. They, they're saying things like, he refuses to pay Roman taxes, and he's claiming to be king of the Jews. Now, that's Herod's title. It's funny because they, they didn't want Rome on the throne either, but they're, they're citing the rules that Jesus is breaking, of course. Now, Pilate is afraid to do anything with Jesus. See, Pilate's old patron, his boss who probably appointed him, his name was Sejanus, he was executed right around this time for treason to Rome. So heads are rolling within the the governmental empire payroll, right? And Pilate doesn't want to be next. He's afraid to not do anything and let a riot start. And he's afraid to kill Jesus because his wife's just had a nightmare about Jesus and has begged him, don't hurt this Jesus guy. The gods told me in a dream. So Pilate He doesn't know what to do. He hears this phrase, king of the Jews? Oh, well, that's Herod's territory. So he punts to Herod. He sends Jesus over to Herod. Okay, so Jesus makes the little journey over to Herod's palace as they lead him over. Herod wants to see magic tricks because Herod's heard of Jesus. He's kind of famous. And then Jesus refuses. He's silent. So Herod throws a fit. He dresses up Jesus and mocks Jesus as king, which is common. And it's ironic because Herod's a puppet king himself. There's so many layers to this. And Herod goes three and out. And he punts and sends him back to Pilate, dressed in royal clothes as a mockery. And there Jesus is again. And nobody knows what to do with Jesus because they're afraid. Pilate's afraid. The the Jews are threatening him by calling his Roman loyalty into question. And they're saying, you're not really a friend to Caesar if you let this guy off. It reminds me of junior high boys, you know, we call them the runners, the kid that goes back and forth stirring up the fight. So this is the Jews. You, you know what Jesus said about your mama, Pilate? And Pilate tries to act like he's too good and too powerful and Rome is above this nonsense, but he's afraid. So he washes his hands in public and he says, okay, I'll do it, but don't blame me. You see what's happening here? The gospel writers are mocking the authorities' mockery of Jesus. So the Jews, they're afraid to break their own law and they're afraid of the Romans, so they won't kill Jesus. Rome doesn't want to execute him. Pilate is afraid of what the Jews might do if they break out in a riot on his watch. He'll either get fired or even killed. So he yields to the threat 
of the Jews. And Jesus is the only one not yielding to threats and fear. Funny enough, he's in control. Rome is supposed to be in charge of the Jews, and the Jews are supposed to be in charge of Jewish Jesus. But it's Jesus who's wagging the whole dog. He's the only one not backed against a wall. It's hilarious. One, one person being true and honest about oppression has this entire religious institution up in arms who in turn have the arm of a superpower up in arms. And Jesus is the only one not playing defense. One leadership author taught me that the calmest person in the room is always the one with the most power. And you see that as Jesus stands in front of Pilate. And the Gospels say there's this moment where Pilate takes Jesus aside and gives Jesus a chance to defend himself. And Jesus is silent. And it irritates Pilate because Jesus isn't defending himself. And there are two great lines here. Pilate says, don't you realize that I have the authority to kill you? And then Jesus speaks and he drops his one-liner. You wouldn't have any authority if it weren't given to you from above. That's a play on Jesus as uh, Jesus versus Pilate, Caesar as God or the divine presence of the universe, Yahweh, Jesus is God saying, my above, my authority, my divine humanity that actually, by the way, lives in every common man is more powerful than your authority. So they mock him. They sentence him to death. He's been beaten once. He gets beaten again. Pilate turns him over. The Roman soldiers take him and they do some things with him. They begin this royal procession through the streets. They beat him, they flog him, and then they do some things with him. They begin at the praetorium, which is the general's tent or palace. And as they're mocking him and beating him, they place on him a crown of thorns, okay? This was like their laurel wreath worn by an emperor, you know, on the pizza box. Uh, the Caesars wore these as a symbol of victory during their pri triumphal procession. And then they put on him a purple robe, which only military commanders or emperors would have worn in their procession. And, and, and they mock him and laugh at him and they lead him out just like they would lead a king. Now, John has this funny narrative. Uh, they, Whenever they put him on the cross, they're going to put a sign over his head. So they make up this sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, the, the soldiers recognize that they put this on there, and they, they don't want anybody to, have, to make a mistake about who Jesus is. And so they come to Pilate. And they say, shouldn't we write on here that we that, that Jesus claims to be king of the Jews, not that he actually is king of the Jews? And Pilate's like, nah, we already wrote it. Let's just leave it on there. And so in three languages, it's displayed at the top of the cross where they take Jesus on the road out of town. And so they, they take Jesus, of course, and we know the story. They lead him up the hill and they execute the criminals up on top of a hill. And it's a display to the rest of the world who's traveling in on that road, especially at Passover time. Look who's in charge here. Don't forget Rome is in charge and don't mess with us. This was the universal symbol to the rest of the world of who's in charge. And now this universal symbol has been flipped and there's a sign that says to all nations coming in above this suffering servant's head. Look who's in charge. The gospel writers are mocking the authorities' mockery of Jesus. Now, Jesus 
was naked when he died. When they nailed him on the cross, Jesus was naked. You know those necklaces are not historically correct, right? When you go into a cathedral and you see the carving of Jesus on the wall, not accurate, take the garment off. Jesus's penis was on full display. And if that makes you feel awkward, maybe you should take a lesson from Jesus about shame and vulnerability and transparency for ourselves. This was Jesus with nothing to hide. This was Jesus like a baby. This was Jesus like a completely impoverished human without even clothes on his back. This was just bare Jesus. And as Jesus is being crucified and he's dying and everything else has been uncovered, they see what's uncovered in his attitude and in his heart too. At the most inner parts of his heart, the, one of the last things that he says is, Father, forgive them. Like at his core is still love and forgiveness. They can't ever get him to fight back. At his core, the most powerful force on earth, forgiveness. And so he dies. And a lot of things happen when he, when he dies uh, in the stories. But one thing that I want to highlight is it says the centurion who led the procession out of town even said, surely this was the D.V. Felius, the son of God, because they exposed everything. And this guy realized that they couldn't get to Jesus, that he had some sort of presence of love and forgiveness about him that was more powerful than what he, a soldier, was doing. Now, I'm going to go off tracks here and get on a little personal rant, but a couple of things I want to point out about why this story of Jesus being crowned king as a suffering servant matters and why it speaks. Uh, The world needs a king who is naked sacrifice. That when everything else is revealed, we're going to find, uh, we're going to find a selfishness in an underlying power game, or are we going to find self-sacrifice for the greater good? That's the question. And for so many of us, like we reveal so much about our leaders and our people, and then we find this ugly thing there, and we're all disappointed, you know. But nakedness and self-sacrificial love together redeem systems of injustice when a leader displays those two things so it's so backwards you know like what leader or public figure do we know who can really afford to bear all really right i was a teacher nobody wants to know the deepest darkest secrets of any teacher uh you take a president you take a ceo you take a a preacher or a public figure and you show a world the highlight reel of their worst moments or what's actually deep down inside of them or them on a tuesday night or whatever and we live in a shame economy and we can't handle it but see jesus and his being naked in the jewish story it reveals something beautiful underneath it actually undoes the shame of genesis you know the adam and eve story a lot of people think the adam and eve story in the book of genesis uh, when they ate the apple that sin was the problem like they messed up and god's mad at them but god's not mad at people who don't know right from wrong for choosing the wrong thing that wasn't the problem in the story sinning wasn't the problem the problem for adam and eve was that they wanted to know more and then they got what they wanted and when they did they realized how bad they were because it says their eyes were opened and it made them ashamed their problem wasn't the sin it was their shame and hiding in the bushes so a later writer calls jesus the new adam he undoes the shame and the curse of nakedness when our worst moments are exposed to the light think about how nakedness and vulnerability function in our world Um, at the culmination of the cross there are three levels there's the people above jesus the authorities who kill him 
then there's Jesus, and then below Jesus there are people, his followers and the poor. There's this universal pattern in any dominance hierarchy. Like you're, You see this all the time. Your boss above you can't be totally vulnerable to you or they risk being destroyed. So they always have to present as if they're better than you, and it leaves you feeling a little contempt because you know they're not, and it leaves you maybe feeling a little bit of shame for yourself. And then the same thing can happen between you and the person under you. You, you. you would feel ashamed if they knew everything, and so you have to kind of play your part, and you resist vulnerability so you don't lose your position. Instead, you choose to hide things like your boss might. And so your underlings will develop contempt towards you and feel shameful of, the, of themselves. And you have to uh, contempt towards your boss. And so in the story of the cross, Jesus disarms the shame of those under him with love for them instead of contempt. And then he disarms the contempt of those above him with vulnerability instead of shame. And the weight of the insecurities of both those above him and below him when exposed to the light came crushing in on him. And they'll come crushing in on us as people rush to find a scapegoat for their shortcomings being exposed to the light. The cross neutralizes shame with vulnerability and it neutralizes contempt with love. And nearly every global problem is rooted in an injustice that's in that's rooted in this. And if we want real global solutions, the only solution is a king or a president who is a suffering servant. It's not possible any other way. Love is the only force that can redeem dominance hierarchies and make them functional again. Love is the only force that can neutralize harmful pursuits of power and the injustice caused by them. This is why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life in the John gospel. He, it was never a statement about how you, you got to get the Willy, Wonka and Go, the, the Willy Wonka golden ticket to heaven if you choose Jesus for your bumper sticker. It was, it was because love and grace for everyone in light is the only way forward. Uh, another thing I would say. Nakedness plus self-sacrificial love redeems the pain. Pain is whenever we thought that the world was isolating us and then we realized it was our own fear that had us trapped. The, the opposite of fear is love. And the Gospels tell a story of when love is in charge the whole time and never backs down, not fear, and love wins. Yet transparency and vulnerability and grace and non-defensiveness and non-accusatory treatment, that wins the day. This love wins. The cross, this way of transparency, it absorbs the pain both from the present and the past. I was uh, recently discussing this Jesus story with a friend who had done extensive research and knew it well. And to him, we kept coming back to the, the main thing that Jesus was doing. And the main thing that Jesus was doing this week during Holy Week was that he was incriminating the nationalism and the racism of the Jews because they're supposed to be a light of the world. And that's like the big main thing. And I'm like, well, that's not the main thing. I mean, it's it's a thing. But the main thing was the oppression of the poor and the powerless in this system. I mean, he's keeping the poor man down. And then I talked to another person and she was like, yeah, yeah, the, the main thing Jesus was exposing here was the ill treatment of other human beings is less than. Of course, that's the most important thing. And then I realized, yeah, my first friend, he came from a background where he as a boy in junior high found himself the victim of racism where he had been excluded and hurt at length because of his color. And there was pain there. 
and he hears this story through these eyes. To him, Jesus is this hero who gave us life to stand up against racism and nationalism, and it gives meaning to those hurt by it. And the other friend who thought this story was about how you treat other humans with dignity and, and you're not mean to other people and you include them, she and junior high found herself in a new place where all of these cliques were and she was hurt by others' mean, piercing comments making fun of her and being excluded from their groups. And she still had pain from that. And me, when I was in junior high, we were financially at rock bottom. I was the poorest kid that I knew in school, and so I often found myself excluded from friend groups, and I watched as systemic oppression kept holding down my hard-working family. That's why I always thought it was about justice for the poor. So who is right? All of us. It's about all of our stories of hurt. Tragedy is when the universe isolates and betrays you and you're alone and you can't make sense of the pain. And it's this hero's journey, it's this quest that overcomes the monster and takes you through the pain where you find redemption and freedom. It's this story that gives meaning for the pain of everybody's story. This is why people have said for 2,000 years that the cross absorbs the wrath of the world. It wasn't because God was mad and there's some math equation that forces him to take out his anger issue on humans. It's quite the opposite. The Christians call this Jesus divine because in this story is an archetype for all stories to find meaning. They call Jesus divine. This is, this is God coming to earth, they would say. It's like the, the, the show Undercover Boss, whenever you realize that the divine power of the universe has been with you the entire time you thought you were alone. This way, the way of walking through the suffering and never giving up your identity and being naked and vulnerable and never giving up love and never bowing to shame, this is the way to life. The early followers of Jesus called their movement the way. It's not an exclusive claim of one person's religion being better than another. It wasn't an invitation to become a part of this death life cycle. This sacrificial love is the way to truth and vulnerability is the way to life. You can ask any psychologist that these are deeply embedded in the human consciousness. So nakedness redeems the pain. And then the, the, the one last thing I would say, nakedness plus self-sacrificial fear or self-sacrificial love rather redeems fear. Uh, the most primitive self-protective state in our lizard brain conquered by the upper brain. Uh, there was a study in 2011. It developed the benign violations theory. It's the, that things are funny. They were, they were asking the question, why are things funny to people? Because they violate some rule or principle of order, but not badly enough to permanently hurt. So they're benign. You'll get through it. This is why we pick on tough guys, and it's funny. It's a benign violation. And the cross makes this spectacle that all violations in this economy are ultimately benign if you can never get to someone's identity or their soul. And it shows you one who survives it. At the same time, the cross says that all of the little ways that we think we are benignly taking advantage of other people by being just a tad bit self-seeking and power hungry, they just mildly, mildly combine to become evil in large systems and become an ultimate violation of people. Do you see what this does? 
It shows that there's ultimate pain in being human, and then it opens up the circle for ultimate joy to exist in the pain in all circumstances. You can find it all here in this divine comedy, which is why this story endures. And that's why they call it Good Friday.